welcome back to America's Constitution. We're here today with Professor Akhil Amar. Hi, Akhil. Hey, Andy. So we're in the middle of presidential month here. Or uh, last time we talked about George Washington. So um, today we're going to move on to a man who inspired any number of memes, right? Anything from uh, his rotundity to, uh, um, uh, you know, all sorts of, uh, of mocking uh, nicknames and so forth. And perhaps we'll learn a little bit about why. So um, the format we're pursuing now, uh, Professor Moore is reading uh, from his new book, The Words That Made Us, uh, small excerpts. And we are then having small discussions about those excerpts. And this is uh, really the first place in the world that you can hear or see any of, of this uh, very anticipated book. So why don't we get right to it? Uh, thanks, Andy. So uh, as we discussed uh, in our last episode, I composed much of this book in the age of Trump. And uh, our earlier podcast talked about what our fellow citizens should be looking for and not looking for uh, in a president um, in connection with Trump, um, whose presidency I think was a big mistake. Uh, and my claim is that we American citizens today would do well to study the past, study our past presidents in particular, who did well and why, who didn't do well and why, and what lessons, that was actually your word, uh, that we citizens today can draw uh, from the past. So our last episode um, was about George Washington, who was unanimously elected president and unanimously reelected. Um, he's a success story, and my claim uh, was that the lessons that we can learn from that are about why Washington was so great. And I, we talked about his tradition of public service and sacrifice throughout the course of his life, um, giving his life for his country long before the presidency. And of course, Trump had none of that. Very famously, he, he, he thought that people who serve are chumps. Um, and George Washington was a uniter. People who opposed the Constitution, and nearly half the country did, still voted for Washington. Um, he, his election was unanimous, and he used his presidency to try to bring people together who had actually been sharply divided on the Constitution. And that was another big difference. And I claimed that Washington was really good at identifying uh, talent, bringing amazing people, um, uh, summoning them to, to, to serve, a Jefferson on his left, a Hamilton on his right, uh, uh, by contrast, I never saw anyone uh, in the Trump campaign before his uh, uh, election who, who seemed impressive. Uh, and even in the presidency, I don't think he, he drew the best and the brightest. Um, uh, we talked about how Washington was an amazing listener. Having brought impressive advisors into his inner circle, he listened carefully to people on each Side And I don't think Trump was a good listener at all. Um, there was a steadiness and a sobriety that uh, um, Washington brought to the office. And I don't think those are adjectives that, that um, uh, apply uh, 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 to Trump. And people sharply criticized Washington, harshly, especially in the second term. And he didn't 
retaliate by trying to put them in prison, by saying, lock them up. Um, so that was last week. Now we're going to talk about Washington's successor, John Adams, whose presidency was uh, not um, uh, glorious. Um, indeed, he w- was sent packing um, uh, in a kind of um, uh, in, in disgrace. That's not altogether different than what happened to Trump. Um, and my claim is is that uh, there actually are <laughs> some similarities between Adams and Trump because Adams is very thin-skinned and Adams lashed out against his critics. Indeed, Adams locked up his critics and you can't do that in America and be a great president. And and that's going to be the biggest uh, uh, takeaway from these readings today on on John Adams. Uh, And once again, I think Studying history can have real lessons for us today. Um, so um, with your permission, I'm going to start the reading. That's great. I think, uh, you know, uh, one might moderate uh, one thing that you said, which I think is that, you know, the, you might see some similarities between some traits of Adams and, and Donald Trump, but Adams was no Trump. Of course, um, Adam, Adams was a, a really impressive intellect, had read more books than probably anyone in America with the possible exceptions of, of Thomas Jefferson, maybe Franklin, although I don't know how much of a book reader Franklin was. Um, I'm not sure that actually Trump has the, um, actually the capacity to sit down and, and read a book start to finish. He does not strike me as a reader. I'm not sure he um, has even read Art of the Deal. I know he didn't write it, but I'm not sure he's actually even read it start to finish uh, because that's actually um, not his skill set. So, of course, to identify you know, one similarity between or a few similarities between Adams and, and Trump is not to a certain identity, but, but Adams is um, has, has got uh, massive rage and mania at his at his worst and, and, and envy. Um, he's, he can be extremely petty at his worst, um, very thin-skinned, and he locks up his critics. Um, there are offsetting virtues that Adams has that, that, that Trump doesn't, so I take your point. Um, um, but Adams fails. Um, and, and if we understand why Adams failed as a president, ooh, that would give us some insight into what we're looking for even today, because even today the presidency has some similarities to the presidency uh, of the late uh, 18th century. Great. And, uh, and uh, as you read, I have to say that in the very first sentence that you're going to read, I love the phrase that you're, <laughs> that you're going to use, and I'm sure that uh, people that hear it will, uh, will know what I'm talking about. So let's go. Okay. John Adams peaked early. It was both his good fortune and his sad fate that he skyrocketed from utter obscurity in 1761 to the apex of glory in 1776, only to spend the rest of his life falling back to earth, frustrated and confused. The imperial crisis of 1760 to 1776 had drawn forth his substantial gifts of intellect and character. As a lawyer who loved history, the more obscure the better, 
He sparred effectively with Massachusetts Governor Thomas Hutchinson and other loyalists in the early 1770s over the legal history of New England's founding, the juridical histories of Scotland and Ireland, and the constitutional status of ancient Greek and Roman colonies. By the mid-1770s, he, not Hutchinson, was ubiquitous. In June 1775, he successfully backed George Washington to lead the new Continental Army. The following May, he steered through Congress a two-pronged resolution that was tantamount to independence, encouraging individual colonies to adopt new state constitutions shorn of all ties to Britain. On July 2nd, this is 1776, the Continental Congress formally proclaimed American independence, adopting a motion that John Adams himself had seconded. Two days later came the Declaration of Independence, revising the draft of a five-man committee on which he had served. Wherever there was congressional work to do, he was there to do it, fueled by manic energy and fierce devotion to the patriot cause. As state constitutions sprouted throughout the year, 1776, Adams had additional reasons to beam. Many of these documents matched the basic template that he had sketched in a widely published pamphlet, Thoughts on Government. In that essay, which had originated as a missive to a friend, Adams argued that bicameral legislatures with power balanced between a popular lower house and a more elitist upper house would serve Americans better than would the simplistic unicameral legislatures that Thomas Paine and Benjamin Franklin favored. Bicameralism plus an independent executive and an independent judiciary would be the Adams prescription for the rest of his days in myriad works, short and long. Despite these triumphs, Adams in the imperial crisis was not truly driving events or laying foundations for future and further constitutional greatness. In his newspaper debates with Thomas Hutchinson and other loyalists, he descended deep into feudal law, canon law, and ancient trivia. With his pedantic and pettifogging antiquarianism and instinct for the capillaries, Adams focused too much on the past and not enough on the present and the future. Given the importance of winning public opinion, the most candid and persuasive constitutional case for America was a line of argument closer to Tom Paine's in common sense. Regardless of who said what in the 1620s when the pilgrims had landed, or how the early Roman and Greek colonies had originated some 2,000 years earlier, the unwritten imperial system of the 1770s required adjustment to reflect increasing demographic and cultural parity between Americans and Britons. It made no sense for a small island to rule forever over a distant and destined to become larger continent. Or at least it made no sense if the British system was rooted in liberty and self-government, as its advocates repeatedly claimed. Pure John Adams-style historical argument, an early version of what would later come to be called constitutional originalism, would indeed make sense for, Mary, for many American constitutionalists post-1789, appealing to the original meaning of the federal constitution. But American originalism focusing on the American founding, has drawn strength from basic facts unique to America's founding document. In a truly pivotal year in world history, 1787-88, Americans carefully crafted a written text that was then widely debated and voted on in an extraordinary continental conversation, a text that could be amended at pleasure 
and thus perhaps did not need willfully creative reinterpretation to remain vital. Nothing of this sort was true of an unwritten and partly mythic British constitution that had evolved over the centuries and was continuing to evolve without formal amendment procedures. Its original meaning, if any such thing existed, was irretrievably lost in the mists of time and the forests of yore. Important intervening events, such as the English Civil War and the Glorious Revolution, had surely changed its basic shape. Why shouldn't more recent events likewise warrant additional modification? Despite Adams's preoccupation with centuries-old British legal arcana and with ancient Mediterranean history, the details of legal practices from long ago and far away were not the keys to 1776. His 1776 Thoughts on Government pamphlet won acclaim precisely because it better captured the spirit of its own time and place. Historians have noted that most early state constitutions attract Adams more than Paine on the unicameral-bicameral debate, but they've given Adams undue credit as the inspiration. The simplest explanation is that pre-existing colonial legislatures were themselves generally bicameral, as was Britain's legislature. New state constitutions were not emulating Adams, but exemplifying inertia. Pennsylvania adopted a unicameral legislature, but again, inertia offers the easiest explanation. The colonial Pennsylvania legislature was unicameral. America was not Adamsonian in 1776. Adams was American. At his best moment, Adams said just this, noting in a 1775 diary entry that he favored a, quote, plan as nearly resembling the governments under which we were born and have lived as the circumstances of the country will admit. Kings we never had among us. Nobles we never had. Nothing hereditary ever existed in the country. Nor will the country require or admit of any such thing. But governors and councils we have always had as well as representatives. A legislature in three branches ought to be preserved and independent judges, unquote. Alas, the events of the following decade conspired to push Adams further away from the main lines of American constitutional development. Congress sent him abroad on diplomatic missions for almost an entire decade, from 1778 to 1788, with a brief interlude back home in late 1779. A dutiful Republican public servant, he obeyed the summons. But in the process, he missed much of America's epic constitutional conversation in 1787 to 1788 and the events that underlay and preceded it. As an American agent in Paris, Holland, and London, he did gain insight into Europe that ultimately helped him as president avoid a needless war with France in the late 1790s. But consider what he missed. He learned almost nothing of Western frontier folk, the Indians, or the Spanish along the Mississippi. He never experienced any part of America south of the Mason-Dixon. He missed the Grand Philadelphia Convention and the great constitutional debate in his own home state. Metaphorically, he was a constitutional Rip Van Winkle who had slept through many of the most important events and conversations that a sound constitutionalist needed to understand. So, um, a lot of stuff there. Um, 
It's true, isn't it, that although Adams advocated for uh, bicameral legislatures, as you say, when it, that was at the state level, and when it came to the federal constitution, as you say, he was absent, but nevertheless, to the degree he theorized, didn't he talk about unicameral legislature uh, at the federal level? Um, he, he later claimed, claimed credit for the entire federal constitution and for the Federalist Papers, but he was a legend in his own mind because if you actually look at his writings prior to the Philadelphia Convention, he actually was defending, in effect, the existing Confederation Congress, which was this unicameral body. He said, oh, um, when I talked about bicameralism and an independent executive and judiciary, I was talking about state constitutions, not sort of a federal um, international assembly. For federal international assemblies, unicameralism uh, is just fine. That's what he said in things that were published in, in 1787. Um, when he returns to America and sees what the Constitution has done, he, he later claims credit for it but, and claims that, that he was the inspiration, but that's not what his writings indicate. And in fact, his own son, John Quincy Adams, opposed the Constitution, a young John Quincy Adams, when it was pending. And actually, that's a, another example of, of Adams advocating for that, which was already in place, which you were uh, talking about earlier. Uh, yeah, he, he likes to claim credit for all sorts of stuff that he didn't quite do, um, C.E.G. Donald Trump. <laughs> or, or maybe every politician. Maybe that's just not fair to Trump. You know, you're, you're a little bit uh, tough on him, I think, when it comes to his, uh, his references back to ancient Greece and Rome, um, because after all, uh, the Federalist, which we uh, you know, have respect for, does the same thing. Uh, you know, what I think, though, is that it does it in a different way. I mean, and the Federalist will talk about grand themes um, in uh, in Sparta and, and Athens, whereas Adams, as you say, he gets so into the weeds, into the little details that, that uh, you know, that's that's not where America comes from is the, is the, is the minutia of these things. Would you agree with that? We, of course, have to remember that the Americans are trying to create a system of self-governance, a republic, and there have been very few in the world. So Britain has some of it. It's got elections for the House of Commons. It's got a jury system, but it's got a hereditary monarch. It's got a hereditary House of Lords. So they're not perfectly Republican. They're, they're the Swiss, but they're a tiny group of sheep herders. So the Americans are going to try to look for inspiration wherever they can find it. And, of course, the the main inspiration are going to be the classic republics of, of antiquity, of uh, uh, ancient Greece uh, and ancient Rome. And so they're going to try to study those to see um, uh, uh, how at, at ancient republicans uh, made their system work and, and why those systems ultimately failed, because Americans think the founders do, the Federalists do, the Federalist Papers definitely do, think that they can learn from history. Um, uh, the difference between someone like Hamilton um, and someone like Adams is that Hamilton also understands modernity. He understands taxation and war, and he's focused on the Indians and America's geography. And um, Adams has just got his head stuck up his uh, classicist um, uh, rear end and isn't really focusing enough on things that are uniquely American, transplanting Greek and Roman ideas to actually the new world. And, and to do that, you need to understand if you're going to actually 
create a successful constitution. Yes, you need to understand armies and navies and America's geography and the Indians and, and North versus South and, and slave, American slavery, which is different than ancient slavery. And Adams just doesn't understand those things well. And I would argue that Hamilton understands all those things better. Also, of course, banking and, and, and taxing authority, um, which are uh, uh, this, uh, an economic system basically um, undergirds a national security system. Right. So it isn't so much a, the, a disdain for, for looking at the past as taking the, the, the appropriate perspective and blending um, what for them was modernity with it. And I think that's, for example, how they were able to, to take the ancient uh, thought that you couldn't have a large democracy or a large republic and, and overcome it. Adams is less imaginative in some ways. He's just, um, he's a bookworm, he's reading all this stuff, but he, he's not very good at applying it. And as we're going to see, on the biggest question of all, boy, he screws the pooch because he doesn't understand that republics require robust, uninhibited, wide-open political expression. And James Madison does understand that. So I'm not being anachronistic in criticizing Adams, and Adams doesn't. So that's what we're going to see by the end of today's mm-hmm. ses- session. Great. When, okay. When, so why don't we resume with our next reading? Okay, back to the reading. Um, a less quirky and less self-absorbed statesman than Adams might have tried to make up for lost time by voraciously consulting newspapers and the like in Washingtonian fashion. But instead of rediscovering America upon his return to the United States in mid-1788, Adams spent much of his spare time continuing his plodding investigations of ancient and early modern Europe, pursuing other tangents, and nursing assorted real and imagined grievances. Notably, Adams did not tour America, as did Washington himself, between 1789 and 1791, and as Adams himself had sensibly begun to do in 1774 when journeying to the First Continental Congress. The middle-aged statesman was not aging well, not maturing, not growing, but rather festering and brooding, haunted by bouts of depression, envy, paranoia, egomania, and rage. Adams also showed little interest in pondering extraordinary ratification year works such as The Federalist. In his later years, old Adams crowed that his own writings had strongly influenced Publius. Publius, however, nowhere cited Adams directly. Perhaps then old Adams was seeing what he wanted to see, his own influence everywhere. In Adams's mind, he, James Otis, and a handful of other heroes had been first on the American scene. The upstart Publians, Hamilton and Madison, were not among the great men of 1776, as Adams himself had been. So he dismissed these young newcomers to the conversation as derivative. Never mind that Publians, Hamilton, and Madison were expounding a specific document, the Constitution, that they had helped draft and bring to life, whereas many of Adams' own writings were much further afield. Throughout his life, Adams misjudged and maligned Hamilton in particular. His rantings about Hamilton ranged from the unbecoming to the grotesque. Adams's enmity began when he learned that Hamilton in 1789 had worked behind the scenes to ensure that Washington would win America's electoral first electoral college vote um, uh, by a wide margin. It surely did not help matters that Adams, 
like Jefferson and Madison, did not understand banking institutions in the slightest. Indeed, Adams saw banks as inherently fraudulent unless they kept all deposits on reserve at all times, a practice not followed by any sound bank then or now. By both personal inclination and institutional design, Adams soon found himself generally outside many of the conversational circles forming under the new constitution. Personally, he prided himself on his fierce independence of thought and action, even as many around him congealed into two emerging national political parties. Federalists tied to Washington and Hamilton and broadly skeptical of revolutionary France and Democratic Republicans, faithful to Jefferson and Madison, and generally pro-French. Over time, events pushed Adams toward the Federalists and the Federalists toward Adams, but neither side was ever comfortable in this relationship. Institutionally, although Adams presided over the Senate as America's first vice president, he was not himself a senator. He showed insufficient sensitivity to the egos and political needs of the men over whom he presided, who for their part wanted to shine in debate to do themselves and their constituents proud. Overflowing with a combination of enthusiasm, narcissism, stubbornness, and petulance, Adams could not restrain his own burning need to be the star of the show. Of course, the senators had in no way selected him as their presiding officer or political chieftain, unlike, say, House members who chose a speaker and other leaders for themselves. Quote, I am nothing, but I may be everything, unquote, he told the Senate in one self-absorbed moment. Privately, he grumbled to wife Abigail that my country has in its wisdom contrived for me the most insignificant office that ever the invention of man contrived or his imagination conceived. As Senate chair, Adams cast a record number of critical tie-breaking votes, none more important than the two times when he backed the Washington position on the decision of 1789, which was about uh, the ability of presidents to fire cabinet officers at will. Sadly, this stance, though commendable and correct, further isolated him. To see why, we must recall the structure of the original vice presidency prior to its transformation under the 12th Amendment. Adams was Washington's vice president, but not because Washington handpicked him. They were not running mates, as is usually the case today, between uh, the relationship today between a president and a vice president. Rather, as runner-up in the presidential vote of 1789, and again in 92, Adams won the consolation prize of the vice presidency. For understandable reasons, Washington did not bring Adams into his inner conversational circle. Although the Braintree lawyer had enthusiastically backed the Virginia planter for the top command spot in 1775, Adams did not remain an unwavering supporter thereafter. Rather, Adams was on the fringes of the 1777-78 Conway Cabal that aimed to cabin and perhaps displace General Washington. If Washington had somehow stumbled as president, his most likely replacement would have been the statesman who had come in second, Adams. Washington unsurprisingly did not confide completely in a man whom he had not picked, who had not always been loyal to him, whom he could not fire at will, who obviously had ambitions of his own, 
and who was the most likely person to topple him if ever, improbably, he were toppled. In turn, any vice president, especially one as prickly and envious as John Adams, was apt to have decidedly mixed emotions about the only officer who outranked him. Behind closed doors at Philadelphia, Delegate Elbridge Gerry had worried that putting the vice president in charge of the Senate would give too much power to the president himself because of the close intimacy that must subsist between president and vice president. Urbane lawyer Governor Morris offered a witty rebuttal that better described this inherently fraught relationship. Quote, the vice president then will be the first heir apparent that ever loved his father, unquote. Thanks to his tie-breaking votes on the decision of 1789, Adams, like Madison before him, in effect encouraged Washington to confide in and confer with his hand-picked and dismissible department heads over all others. Hamilton thus moved to the center of Washington's circle, while Madison continued to converse with his House colleagues and his constituents back home, and also deepened his political partnership with Jefferson. Meanwhile, Adams continued to stand alone, not quite in either the inner executive circle or the inner Senate circle, a man without a branch and without a party. It was lonely at the almost top. No, you can't. Uh, you and I have both uh, enjoyed the, the Netflix series The Crown. Um, it's, you can't uh, escape the similarities between the Queen Elizabeth II and Prince Charles uh, interactions and that uh, Governor Morris quote about the vice president being the first heir apparent that ever loved his father. It's amazing that you say that. I'm not yet um, uh, into uh, the later seasons. You're the one who pushed the crown on me, and I'm so glad you did because I'm loving it. And indeed, when I wrote this, um, I hadn't ever seen the crown because I wrote uh, this uh, a year ago. But in fact, as I read it uh, just a minute ago, that's what was flashing through my head. And of course, um, the, the crown, um, which uh, I'm, I'm seeing uh, at your um, uh, 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 prompting. Uh, and of course, um, Governor Morse would understand that all the people at Philadelphia would understand that because they're Britons in America. Um, that's, uh, they uh, grow up um, uh, knowing the British system. They know all the monarchs of of, of England, um, uh, uh, pre and, 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 and post uh, Union with Scotland. Uh, so, of course, they would be intimately familiar um, um, with this. They would know their Shakespeare and know that heirs of parents have sometimes actually fomented rebellion against their, their fathers. Um, so, of course, they would see all of that. And what about this uh, Conway Cabal? This is the first I'm hearing of this. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Um, uh, well, historians aren't exactly sure how broad um, a conspiracy, if that's what you want to call it, it was. Um, but you got to remember that Washington does not have a lot of military victories to his credit, and Americans are getting itchy. So um, he, he escapes disaster um, uh, at Brooklyn and on Manhattan, but he's getting his butt kicked. He's, he's chased all across New Jersey. Um, yeah, he, he rallies by crossing the Delaware and, and succeeding in, in uh, Trenton and, and, and Princeton, but these are kind of, you know, relatively um, um, minor uh, uh, confrontations. They're morale-boosting 
Um, he is not able, in, in the end, to defend Philadelphia, the, the national capital, against the British um, at Brandywine and Germantown. The guy who's having more success militarily is, is actually Horatio Gates, um, aided by none other than Benedict Arnold. Yes, Benedict Arnold. Uh, at the Battle of Saratoga, which is the, the, the big um, uh, uh, victory uh, early on in the Revolutionary War. So Americans are, are, some of them are beginning to grumble that maybe Washington isn't the right guy for the job. Um, and the Conway Cabal um, is the label that historians have given to these um, uh, grumblings about maybe we should um, uh, uh, install someone like Gates in, uh, in charge and, and demote Washington. So, so Washington, as you say, had reason to be wary of Adams. Um, and as you say, he didn't pick Adams per se because of the, you know, the structure of the vice presidency and the presidency of the Electoral College at that time. Nevertheless, um, certainly when he ran for a second term, you would think that he, he could have had some sway in whether or not Adams uh, would be his VP. Um, would you say that's true? Um, he... That plays it very, very straight. People are, there's not a lot of electioneering and campaigning. I, I think he thinks it would probably be generally inappropriate for him to mouth off on how electors should should vote. He's not even asking them to vote for him. So how can he he basically say vote for someone else or vote against someone else? Um, and so he uh, uh, is, um, he adopts a very low profile um, in these elections. And yet Hamilton uh, engages in machinations with the Electoral College. Um, uh, absolutely. Um, so, 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 so Hamilton is a political operative in a way that Washington is above politics. So what I'm getting at here is, was he Washington's political operative? In other words, was he acting uh, with Washington's blessing, with his knowledge, uh, with no. his tacit approval? No, um, on, on, this, on this he was freelancing. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think, and and uh, Hamilton freelances from time to time, and and sometimes this gets him to a lot of trouble. In fact, because as we go into the subsequent election of eighteen hundred, you know, we're still in this in the pre twelfth amendment, um, you know, time, and I don't want to you know get get ahead of myself here, but it does it is a thread that as as we read of these read these things that. It seems like there's machinations, and yet, what really are the mechanisms? If you can't campaign, you know, and um, and, and Washington is above it all uh, at first. You know, how at once there there the VP is independent of the president, and yet um, there there are political uh, scheme, there is political scheming going on. So it's you know it's it, it's a subtle subtle distinction as opposed to what happens later. Right. And we're, by the end of today, we're going to see what happens later because we're going to see the election of 1800 um, and, and it's going to have very, very open campaigning uh, when Adams runs against Thomas Jefferson. It's actually a rematch of uh, their, their first contest, which is uh, 1796. Right. Uh, so so we're going we're to see a very different world by the end of today's reading. OK, well, let's resume then. So, in fact, this next section begins with Adams as president. Uh, So George Washington has stepped down after uh, his second term, and uh, Adams uh, uh, wants to be president, and so does Thomas Jefferson. 
uh, and they basically run against each other in 1796, but it's a relatively tame affair, um, and they're not running as a team at all. Indeed, each one of them has a kind of um, a partner. Uh, so uh, the Federalists tell John Adams, gee, why don't you team up with a fellow named Pinckney uh, from South Carolina, and uh, the, the Jeffersonian Republicans pair Jefferson with a guy named Aaron Burr. You're going to hear about him later in American history. Um, so there are these two tickets, uh, and they run against each other, but it's a relatively tame affair. Uh, and Americans, in effect, don't love the idea of either team. So they basically end up with a, uh, America ends up with a split verdict. Adams wins uh, the most votes, so he's president. And his major rival wins the second most votes, Thomas Jefferson, and he ends up in the vice presidency. Um, so that's now the, the backdrop for this um, next passage. One, proverbially, is a lonely number. At any given time, one and only one person shoulders the crushing burdens of the American presidency. Events conspired to isolate John Adams, making his presidency a uniquely lonely one. Adams has spent much of the decade from 1778 to 1788 far from home and friends. The next period of his life left him further isolated, a vice president without a branch, an old-fashioned statesman without a party quite, and a politician without a partner facing emerging two-man teams, Hamilton Washington on one side, Jefferson Madison on another side. Thanks to the decision of 1789, incoming President Adams was entitled to the cabin officers of his own selection. But at the outset of his administration, he opted simply to continue the department heads that he had inherited from Washington. Alas, he did not converse well with these men. He was never the best of listeners and did not improve with age. Also, he spent more than a quarter of his presidential tenure away from his department heads back home in Massachusetts with his beloved, clever, nurturing, and ailing Abigail, rather than in the Capitol with his government. President Washington, too, had spent time away from the Capitol, but had wisely used much of his time seeing and being seen, mingling with his fellow citizens on a celebrated New England tour in late 1789, on a quick trip to Rhode Island after it rejoined the Union in 1790, and on a grand circuit of the southern states in 1791. Ultimately, Adams discovered to his horror that several of his cabinet secretaries were in tight conversation with Hamilton. Not all of this machination, not all of it, stop. Not all of this was machination on Hamilton's part. He knew how to run government. Adams did not. And it often made sense for Adams's cabinet men to receive and follow Hamilton's operational and policy advice as issues arose. In retirement, Adams colorfully complained that his initial cabinet had consisted of, quote, puppets danced upon the wires of two jugglers behind the scenes. And these jugglers were Hamilton and Washington, unquote. Pre-inauguration, Adams made genuine efforts at outreach. Jefferson wrote, Madison, quote, my letters inform me that Mr. Adams speaks of me with great friendship and with satisfaction in the prospect of administering the government in concurrence with me. But Adams enjoyed spirited face-to-face -face confrontations. 
Jefferson hated oral combat and thus told Madison that he would refuse any position in Adams' executive cabinet, a prospect that for Jefferson conjured up painful memories of his repeated and humiliating cabinet defeats at the hands of Hamilton. Quote, I cannot have a wish to see the scenes of 1793 revived as to myself and to descend daily into the arena like a gladiator to suffer martyrdom in every conflict, unquote. As Adams assumed office, even those who had backed him against Jefferson harbored grave doubts. Oliver Walcott Sr., Connecticut's Federalist governor, had served with Adams in the Continental Congress in the 1770s. In 1795, Washington chose Walcott's son and namesake to replace Hamilton as Treasury Secretary. Two weeks into the Adams administration, Sr. warned Jr. what to expect of his new chief. Quote, we have done the best we could in our election. We've chosen a very honest man, a friend to order and to national independence and honor. But that you may know that I'm not mistaken, I will for once, under a strong seal of secrecy, venture to tell you that I always considered Mr. Adams a man of great vanity, pretty capricious, of a very moderate share of prudence, and of far less real abilities than he believes he possesses. I therefore sincerely wish that he may have able counselors in whom he will confide, though as he will not be influenced, but by an apparent compliment to his own understanding, it will require a great deal of address, that is a great deal of sucking up, to render him the service which it will be essential for him to receive, unquote. So that's, uh, that's quite a quote you've got there. Yeah, and now you can see why I think there are some similarities to Trump. You know, not perfect, but at his worst, Adams is vain um, and a bad listener um, and um, envious of everyone else. And, and you're going to see that's going to manifest itself in the end in locking up his critics because he's so thin-skinned. And that's why reading this, I, I would just found it very surprising that he kept Washington's cabinet on. It, it just seems so counter to those traits. He would want his own men. But of course, he had never wielded um, significant executive power before. He had never been, for example, a governor. He had never run a cabinet um, office. So he doesn't have a lot of experience running things and using deputies. And, and he's, he's just has, he's, and, and that's one of the reasons that Americans actually are wary of him. And they think, okay, we're going to try to have a team. We're going to try to recreate the 1776 team. We're going to get Adams and Jefferson to work together again. It doesn't, of course, work out that way, but Adams has very little Indeed, no real executive experience as such. He wasn't in the military. He wasn't a cabinet officer. He wasn't a state governor. Um, yes, he was an ambassador, but that's not quite a classic executive position. So I guess the, <laughs> one might say that he, in fact, didn't have a team that he, that he could have appointed. He really didn't, because he had not you know, been in an executive position, he didn't have people that he had worked with that were loyal to him and so forth. Yeah, he, he, he didn't have a lot of experience as a team captain. Okay. Thus, Adams did not have his own Hamilton or Madison to support him, as did Washington and Jefferson, respectively. 
nor did he have a political party that saw him as its founding figure and essential banner, again, unlike Washington and Jefferson. Nor did he have a hand-picked cabinet to steady him. Nor did he have a vice president willing to work closely with him in a coalitional government. That left Abigail, who was generally perceptive and loyal to a fault. But Abigail was, in fact, too loyal to him personally and too close to him emotionally to give him detached advice on the most critical constitutional decision he confronted as president, a decision about the very structure of American constitutional conversation. Large technological, demographic, and geopolitical forces were merging to make American public discourse far more combative in the mid-1790s than it had been only a decade earlier. Renewed warfare between Europe's two great powers, England and France, warfare that now had a strong ideological edge, thanks to the French Revolution, exerted a powerful gravitational pull on still tiny America. European politics thus globalized and deepened what might otherwise have been viewed as smaller and local policy rifts between Federalists and Democratic Republicans. Heavy immigration from various old world flashpoints, especially France and Ireland on the Jeffersonian side and England on the Adamsonian side, added still more intensity, anxiety, and emotion to the new world mix. More and more newspapers were now competing more and more fiercely than ever for eyeballs. Many new and ambitious professional writers were reacting with increasingly pointed prose. When Adams found himself insulted daily in this new and nasty newspaper environment, he chose to back a statute, the Sedition Act of 1798, that promised to put an end to the venom. His decisions first to sign and then to wildly over-enforce this law seemed plausible to many at the time, including several circuit jurists and, importantly, the usually shrewd Abigail. But these fateful decisions reflected a deep misunderstanding of the American constitutional project, at whose core was the idea of a robust right of ordinary folk, even if unfair, mean-spirited, and mistaken, to criticize all manner of public servants, including the president himself. Adams signed the Sedition Act into law on July 14, 1798, nine years to the day after the storming of the Bastille. The 1789 Parisian incident had set into motion events that ultimately toppled and killed King Louis XVI, his queen, Marie Antoinette, and their heir to the throne, the Dauphin. Adams' signature likewise led to his own ouster, but the president, his lady Abigail, and their heir, John Quincy, got to keep their heads in the transition and thereafter. On two telling dimensions, orderliness of regime change and avoidance of bloodshed, Federalist-era America showed itself vastly superior to revolutionary France. Under the Sedition Act, anyone who dared to criticize the federal government, the president, or Congress risked a fine of up to $2,000 and a prison term of up to two years. But venomous criticism, even if knowingly false and violence inciting that targeted the vice president, was fair game under the law. Thus, in the impending electoral rematch between Adams and Jefferson in 1800, Adams and his allies could malign Jefferson, but Jefferson and his allies could not reciprocate with equal vigor. Congressional aspirants attacking congressional incumbents would need to watch their words, but not vice versa. 
just in case the Jeffersonians managed to win the next election, the act provided that would, it would poof into thin air on March 3, 1801, a day before the new presidential term would begin. On its surface, the act seemed modest. It criminalized only, quote, false, scandalous, and malicious writings or utterances that have the intense to defame, unquote, or comparable acidic motivation. The defendant could introduce into evidence the truth of the matter contained in the publication charge as a libel, and his jury would have the right to determine the law and the fact under the direction of the court, as in other cases. This was more generous than British libel law at the time. Under Charles Fox's 1792 libel law, a British jury could, in Zengarian fashion, decide not just whether a defendant had published a given tract, but also whether the tract was libelous. However, truth was no defense at all in Britain. Indeed, truth could actually compound a British publisher's liability. The greater the truth, the greater the libel, because the libel E would suffer a greater reputational fall if the unflattering story was, in fact, true. British law was thus all about protecting his majesty and his lordship and his worshipfulness from criticism. It was the product of a residually monarchical, aristocratic, and deeply deferential legal and social order. As the jurist William Blackstone explained in his magisterial commentaries on the laws of England, British freedom of the press meant only that the press would not be licensed or censored pre-publication. Anyone could freely run a printing press, but printers might face severe punishment after the fact if they used their presses to disparage the powerful. In his 1788 correspondence with Madison about the need for an American Bill of Rights, Jefferson himself went beyond Blackstone, but not by miles. Quote, a declaration that the federal government will never restrain the presses from printing anything they please will not take away the liability of the printers for false facts printed, unquote. Jefferson envisioned liability only for false facts printed, but what if the falsehood was a good faith mistake? or rhetorical overstatement in a vigorous political give and take? Could an honest mistake or mere exuberance ever justify serious criminal liability and extended imprisonment? Also, who would bear the burden of proof? The Sedition Act purported to criminalize only false statements, but in the 1790s, many derogatory comments were legally presumed false. The Sedition Act said that a defendant could, quote, give in evidence in his defense the truth of the matter. Unquote. But many edgy statements mix truth with opinion and rhetoric. If a critic wrote that John Adams was a vain and pompous ass who did not deserve a second term, how exactly could the critic establish the courtroom's truth of the matter? President Adams gave insufficient attention to these issues, perhaps because he focused too much on musty English law books and not enough on what had happened in America in the transformational decade that he had missed. In at least two decisive ways that had profound implications for the Sedition Act controversy, American and British constitutional law differed. First, in America, no federal common law crimes, that is, crimes defined solely by judicial case law and lacking statutory foundations, properly existed. And this fact undercut a key argument for the Sedition Act, 
some congressional federalists pushing the act said that it was actually a liberalization of Blackstonian rules that would otherwise operate in America. These backers thus depicted the act as a blow for freedom. But as the Supreme Court would later explain in a landmark case, the British common law of crimes had no place in the new federal government, nor did any other kind of judge-fashioned regime of criminal liability properly operate federally. Unless and until Congress enacted a given criminal statute with the president's signature or over his veto, the federal baseline was freedom from all federal criminal liability. Before we get to your second point, uh, could you clarify this for me? You say that there's no federal common law of crimes, which I understand to mean that there can be no federal crime unless Congress passes a law uh, naming the crime. How does this come into play with regard to Adam's absence and the Sedition Act? So there are two or three big ideas um, underlying this basic feature of American liberty, which our audience probably, many of them maybe maybe never even heard of unless they went to law school, um, which is to repeat that, yes, there is no federal criminal law unless Congress first passes a statute names the law, identifies what the elements of the offense are, specifies a punishment. Well, you know, why is that? And that's not true at the state level. At the state level, uh, judges sometimes um, in American history have, not just sometimes, often have uh, allowed criminal prosecution and punishment even without an express prior decision of the state legislature to criminalize something. They've just, in effect, borrowed the English criminal law rules. So so what's up with that? What's the difference? Here's one thing. Um, Precisely because the federal government is a limited government um, and uh, it operates against the backdrop of of state law, there's always going to be a question even if we need criminal law, why does, why does it need to be federal? Why not just let states handle it? So in our system, that means Congress needs to pass a law in which the Senate, as a guardian of states' rights, actually makes an affirmative decision, yeah, we're going to make this issue a federal case, as opposed to leaving, let's say, murder, rape, robbery, arson, ordinary crimes, just leaving them up to states. So in America, there's always a, a federalism question. Even if we're going to have judge-made law, why it should be, why there should be a federal criminal law, and for that, um, the House, uh, excuse me, the Senate needs to be um, involved as a guardian of states' rights. Uh, why, why should we make this a federal case? There's a second idea. In states, state courts are often democratically accountable. So they are, in effect, um, uh, recognizing criminal liability, and but they are dependent on state legislatures. In many states, they're elected. So if you don't like what they're doing, you, an ordinary voter, can vote against them. Now, that's not so true for federal judges who have much more independence of the legislature and the executive, life tenure, undiminishable salary. If you don't like him, you can't vote him out of office. So there's this liberty-democracy angle to the thing. Maybe state judges can recognize and create um, criminal liability or bar it from Britain, but we don't want federal judges to do that unless and until the House of Representatives 
um, where we are all uh, um, represented um, uh, ways in. So at the um, so there are a couple of at least maybe three deep ideas here. There's the federalism idea: no federal criminal liability unless the Senate says yes. We need to make this a federal case. And no criminal liability unless representatives of the people, um, democratically elected, uh, agree to, to threaten liberty in this way. So liberty and democracy and federalism add up to the need for the House of Representatives and the Senate, and typically the president has to sign the bill. They all have to sign off before anyone goes to federal prison. But of course, what happened here was they passed the Sedition Act. So they essentially did make and name the crime. Oh, but you're oh, saying uh, that they also uh, tried to enforce a presumed federal uh, common law crime of sedition, even in, independent of the act? Adams both did that. And in backing the sedition law, they went around saying, oh, this is actually a liberalization because if we did nothing at all, we'd have stricter rules. Um, so we're actually passing a statute that... Um, gets rid of the um, uh, uh, federal common law of sedition, which didn't exist. So if there really didn't exist a federal common law of sedition, they're, they're not liberalizing anything. They're creating something that didn't exist before. And to make it even worse, so, so part of this is political spin. They're saying, oh, we're actually liberalizing. Not at all. And second, even though they said they were liberalizing, Adam said, oh, well, for things that happened before the statute came into place, there's a federal common law regime that's even stricter, and I'm going to whack people with that, too. I see. Okay, that clears it up. And, of course, later this will become an important case in the Marshall Court, correct? Absolutely. Um, a, a landmark case that I actually talk about in the book, but that most of our audience, unless they went to law school, will never have heard of. It's a landmark case called United States versus Hudson and Goodwin, in which the Supreme Court unanimously says there's no federal common law of crimes. It's in a Marshall Court opinion that's unusual because it's not authored by John Marshall himself, who authors most of the opinions. It's actually authored by Thomas Jefferson's first appointee to the court. Um, and that's not a total coincidence because Thomas Jefferson is going to win the presidency against Adams by opposing the Sedition Act and opposing the theory that supported the Sedition Act, which was that there was a pre-existing federal common law of crimes. And when he puts his first appointee on the court, um, it's not a surprise that that person thinks this is a really important concept, and he's the one who actually writes the opinion um, in Hudson and Goodwin. So it's the gift that keeps on giving here, the Sedition Act. Well, so let's <laughs> at, get... least for, at least for me, because it gives me something to write about, and, and I hope you, our, my audience will learn something they didn't know before. So let's get back to the reading. Second, and far more consequentially, American constitutional law rejected British constitutional law at the most fundamental level. In England, Parliament was sovereign. In America, the people were sovereign. No government agent, Congress or the President, could presume to tell sovereign citizens what to think or what to say politically. This fundamental structural point about popular sovereignty also translated into a clean textual argument based on the freedom of speech. 
In Britain, members of the sovereign parliament enjoyed near absolute freedom of speech, a right expressly affirmed in the English Bill of Rights of 1689. No one outside parliament could punish a member of parliament for speaking his mind on the floor of parliament. Parliament, deriving its very name from parler, to speak, was a special and sovereign speech spot, a venue for virtually unfettered political debate, even if defamatory. Under British law, ordinary British subjects outside Parliament did not have comparably sweeping freedom of speech. Ordinary Britons were mere subjects, and Parliament had sweeping power, sovereignty, over subjects. By contrast, as American lawyer James Wilson had explained, and as the preamble itself had made clear, in America, the citizens themselves were sovereign. As such, they inherited the same, or nearly the same, sweeping power of sovereign political discourse that in Britain operated only within Parliament's walls. The First Amendment textualized this basic difference, recognizing that ordinary American citizens, unlike ordinary British subjects, enjoyed a sweeping freedom of speech above and beyond a British-style freedom of the press. Adams did not understand this. Neither did Hamilton, quite. True, the high-strung New Yorker did not vote for the sedition law. He was now in private practice. But neither did he pen a passionate defense of free speech at this critical hour. In 1788, Hamilton had not dramatically pivoted in favor of a Bill of Rights, as had Madison. More recently, perhaps the abuse that Hamilton had endured in the press from penmen such as Callender tempered whatever enthusiasm the great lawyer might otherwise have felt for the broadest possible understanding of freedom to bash public officials. The calendar reference, of course, is to a sex scandal that came out uh, when uh, the journalist calendar told his readers that uh, Hamilton uh, was involved in this sordid affair. There was, however, one leading founder who understood expressive freedom deeply and viscerally understood it the way Hamilton understood tax and trade and banks and war, the way Washington understood armies and diplomacy and national security. Whereas Alexander Hamilton and George Washington understood, best of all, how to create a strong government to protect against external foes, James Madison understood, best of all, how to protect freedom of thought and expression against internal oppression. In 1789, at Jefferson's and Washington's prodding, but not Hamilton's, Madison had taken the lead in drafting a Bill of Rights promising liberty of conscience and expression. In the mid-1790s, Madison had again taken the lead defending the rights of common citizens to criticize officialdom. Quote, if we advert to the nature of Republican government, we shall find that the censorial power is in the people over the government and not in the government over the people. Unquote. So Madison had explained in 1794. In 1798 to 1801, it would be Madison and his senior partner Jefferson who would once more take the lead defending the freedom of the mind and the closely related freedoms to speak one's mind and to hear others speak theirs. So there's a lot there about the sedition law. Um, the... Uh... The sedition law at sunset in 1801, as you said, but was it ever ruled un unconstitutional? Now, you know, in I know in New York Times versus Sullivan, the court said 
that it had been that it had been unconstitutional. But is that is that dictum? Um, so um, today um, it's nine o uh, in the U.S. Supreme Court that the sedition law uh, is unconstitutional. New York Times said it. You could call it dictum, but it's part of the logic of the court's opinion in New York Times versus Sullivan. Um, but long before New York Times versus Sullivan, on July 4th, 1840, the 14th anniversary of the death of John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, Congress passed a law that declared that the Sedition Act was basically unconstitutional, and it the law repaid the fines that had been imposed and paid into the Treasury by people who had been convicted under the Sedition Act. So by 1840, basically everyone in America who counts, um, both political parties, are conceding that the Sedition Act was completely unconstitutional. But at the time, the judges who weighed in, as we're about to see, actually in general sided with John Adams. In New York Times versus Sullivan, Justice Brennan quotes that act, that uh, James Madison statement that you uh, had in, from 1794 in his, his opinion. He does indeed. Um, and just to remind our audience, New York Times versus Sullivan is a landmark of free expression case from the mid-1960s. Um, and it's the first time the U.S. Supreme Court actually says this emphatically because the justices on the Supreme Court have great difficulty in admitting that previous justices have made mistakes. Um, it's like papal infallibility or something. So it's not until the 1960s that the Supreme Court emphatically says, oh, earlier justices writing circuit were completely wrong uh, in the Sedition Act controversy. And that's what actually the, the, the next section of, of, of the reading is all about um, those um, initial judicial rulings, uh, mistaken um, but important. Well, let's get to them then. John Adams erred not simply in signing the Sedition Act, but in mindlessly and mercilessly prosecuting and punishing and never pardoning men under it. He and his minions hounded tart but peaceful speakers and printers whose only real crime was dislike of John Adams and his policies in cases whose facts were miles apart from treason, riot, or mayhem. Indeed, under the ridiculously strict standards of his own administration, a young John Adams himself should have been fined and imprisoned for his vigorous denunciation of Governor Thomas Hutchinson in the 1760s and 1770s. In the first high-profile sedition case brought in October 1798, the Adams administration targeted a sitting Republican congressman from Vermont, Matthew Lyon, for political writings and harangues, some of them at campaign rallies. In one passage highlighted by the prosecution, Lyons had written that Adams had, quote, swallowed up every proper consideration of the public welfare in a continual grasp for power, in an unbounded thirst for ridiculous pomp, foolish adulation, or selfish avarice, unquote. Adams, wrote Lyon, had turned out of office men of real merit and independency in favor of men of meanness. Lyon also read at public meetings a communication from a French diplomat bemoaning the extremely alarming state of relations between France and the United States, worsened by, quote, the bullying speech of your president and stupid answer of your Senate, 
unquote. Congress wrote the diplomat in words that Lyon publicly repeated should send Adams, quote, to a madhouse, unquote. How exactly could Lyon prove in a courtroom the technical truth of these words, blending as they did fact, opinion, analysis, interpretation, and rhetoric? Riding circuit, Justice William Patterson told the jury to pay no heed to Lyon's claim that the law was unconstitutional. The jury convicted and Patterson sentenced Lyon to a fine of $1,000 and a four-month imprisonment. Dozens of newspapers across the continent brought readers detailed reports of the cause celeb. While in prison, Lyon wrote an account of his travails that appeared in several newspapers. I am locked up in a room about 16 feet long by 12 feet wide with a necessary in one corner, which affords a stench about equal to the Philadelphia docks in the months of August. The cell is the common receptacle for horse thieves, counterfeiters, runaway Negroes, or any kind of felons, unquote. When Lyon stood for re-election from prison in December, his constituents gave him a roaring vote of confidence, returning him to his house seat. Adams thus won the first courtroom battle, but was beginning to lose the war of public opinion. In early 1800, America's interim capital, Philadelphia, played host to a different high-profile sedition case, this one against a colorful English emigre, Thomas Cooper. Cooper had printed a handbill denouncing the present for various, quote, political mistakes, unquote, including a bloated military, fiscal blundering, and improper executive interference in a notorious extradition case involving a seaman who claimed to be an American, Jonathan Robbins. In his defense... Cooper told the jurors and the presiding judges that, quote, in the present state of affairs, the press is open to those who will praise, while the threat of the law hang over those who will blame the conduct of the men in power. Nor do I see how the people can exercise on rational grounds their elective franchise if perfect freedom of discussion of public characters is not allowed. Electors are bound in conscience to reflect and decide who best deserves their suffrage. But how can they do it if these prosecutions in terrarum close all the avenues of information and throw a veil over the grossest misconduct of our periodic rulers? The presiding judge, Justice Chase, responded by vigorously defending the Sedition Act and his charge to the jury. Cooper was convicted and sentenced to a $400 fine and six months' imprisonment. The next and last big sedition case resulted in an even harsher sentence, nine months' imprisonment. The defendant was none other than the trashy yet talented journalist James Callender, the man who broke the Hamilton sex scandal in 1797 and would later expose the Jefferson-Sally Hemings affair in 1802. In the run-up to the presidential election of 1800, Callender published a campaign pamphlet, The Prospect before us. Calendar painted in vivid colors and attacked Adams for just about everything. And these are some quotes. Take your choice then between Adams, war and beggary, and Jefferson, peace and competence. The reign of Mr. Adams has been one continued tempest of malignant passions. As present, he's never opened his lips or lifted his pen without threatening and scolding. The administration's corruption was notorious. Indeed, the president appointed his own son-in-law to a plum federal office, 
thus heaping myriads of dollars upon a paper jobber next to Hamilton himself is perhaps the most detested character on the continent. Adams's hands are reeking with the blood of the poor, friendless Connecticut sailor, unquote. Here Callender referred, as said Cooper, to the Jonathan Robbins affair. Notably, Callender also blasted the Sedition Act itself and Adams's abuse of it. The grand object of his administration has been to destroy every man who differs from his opinions, unquote. Callender cleverly connected his advocacy of broad citizen freedom of speech to the Constitution's broad protection of congressional freedom of speech. If a representative shall say in Congress that the president is a fool, the Constitution secures his impunity. He has only to walk out the door and repeat his own words, and he becomes a criminal. Unquote. This was indeed a nice statement of the Adams administration's curious position in the Lyons case. The simple act of writing a censure of government incurs the penalties, although the manuscript shall only be found locked up in your own desk, noted Callender. Here the Sedition Act did indeed approximate mind control, yet Adams apparently never shuddered to think about his own diary diatribes against Thomas Hutchinson and other governmental figures in the 1760s and 70s. Finally, Callender, who showed more self-awareness than Adams on this point, connected his critique of the act to the very nature of the election year pamphlet in which his more general critiques of Adams were appearing. The act made it virtually impossible to discuss the merits of the candidates. If a person proclaimed that he preferred Jefferson to Adams, as Callender was of course doing in this very pamphlet, wouldn't that itself be an actionable slur on Adams, asked Callender? The Adams administration apparently agreed and prosecuted Callender in the spring of 1800 for what today looks like a rather typical, if overstated, campaign tract. Once again, Justice Samuel Chase presided, this time as a circuit court in Virginia. Chase sentenced Callender to a nine-month sentence, which drew the gaze of printers and readers across the continent, just as the Adams-Jefferson rematch was unfolding in a series of statewide contests for electoral votes. Alongside the convictions of Lyon and Cooper, Callender's case cast Adams in an unflattering light, as did other lower-profile cases. Uh, one of my favorites involved uh, a Newark drunkard, Luther Baldwin, who made a crude joke about the president's rear end. Uh, all told, the Adams administration initiated more than a dozen, indeed one recent historian says many dozen, prosecutions under both the Sedition Act and the faux federal common law, seditious libel. Some cases never came to trial, but still captured attention. For example, the feisty printer of Philadelphia's Aurora General Advertiser, Benjamin Franklin Bache, named for his famous printer grandfather, died of yellow fever while under indictment. The Aurora was a high-profile anti-administration newspaper published in an iconic city. Going after Bates was the 18th century equivalent of a Republican president today seeking to imprison the editors of the Washington Post, or a modern Democratic president aiming to criminalize the publishers of the National Review. Were there differences at this time in how one might seek to challenge a law on constitutional grounds? Nowadays, we think of a, a law like the Sedition Act 
and the mad dash to the Supreme Court that might take place, even if it might begin in criminal court then and now? So today, let's imagine a law that people think is unconstitutional. Make it easy, let's call it an abortion law. Um, And even before the law has gone into effect, you got lawyers rushing to court, federal trial court, um, seeking, or maybe state court, an injunction against that law ever going into operation, and then that case might be litigated all the way up to the Supreme Court before the law has ever even in effect, um, uh, been applied against anyone. Uh, well, at the founding era, it was a little different. Um, judicial review could take place in, in, in that scenario, but a much more common scenario is the government actually starts prosecuting people. And in def- as their defense, they raise the unconstitutionality of the statute. Um, and since we're talking about the Sedition Act, they're going to be prosecuted in federal court. They're going to try to raise the unconstitutionality of the statute. They're going to try to get the judge to dismiss the case, the federal judge, who might be a U.S. Supreme Court justice right in circuit. And if they can't convince the judge, they're going to try to make their constitutional argument to a local jury saying, you should acquit me because um, this is an unconstitutional statute. They're going to try to do all of that. Um, But here's one other wrinkle. Um, Yes, the Sedition Act typically involved um, prosecutions by the government of individuals who are raising the Constitution as a shield, as a defense. They're the defendants in court. Uh, um, uh, but the wrinkle, and where today often um, the, the uh, uh, civil uh, rights litigants go to court um, as, as plaintiffs, in effect, and get an injunction rather than as criminal defendants, but the other wrinkle of the founding is if one was convicted in a lower federal criminal court, there weren't always mechanisms to actually get the case up to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court did not have general appellate jurisdiction over federal criminal prosecutions until the late uh, 19th century, or um, really the turn of the 20th century. Um, so Supreme Court justices writing circuit did hear the constitutional objections of some of these Sedition Act defendants, but these defendants, once convicted in these lower federal courts presided over by Supreme Court justices writing circuit, had no way to get the or no easy way to get the case to the U.S. Supreme Court to hear it on bonk. What changed uh, in the late 19th century? Was, was there a statute that Congress yeah. passed? Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly so. So the, the other thing that I think uh, is different uh, in this process is the, the role of the jury, which you just alluded to briefly. You know, the, the question of the jury as, as a constitutional actor is something that I think we've, we've lost over, over a couple of centuries. I mean, you've made the case elsewhere that uh, juries in this era are almost a fourth branch of government from the point of view of... Uh, making sure that laws are constitutional. Uh, And nowadays people think uh, that this is entirely the role of the Supreme Court. And I know you also believe that the president and Congress are actors uh, on this question. And it's also tied into themes of jurors as voters, uh, which makes one think of the importance of, you know, later extending the franchise to blacks, to women, and so forth, uh, which is also tied to the ability to serve, serve on juries. Uh, and I believe that uh, the juries and the citizenry actually guarded these rights uh, somewhat jealously. 
uh, which may have been you know, part of the impeachment of, of Samuel Chase, uh, who I believe uh, tried to essentially drown out a defense attorney's attempt to appeal to a jury. So uh, could you comment on this? Great. And you said maybe a fourth branch of government, maybe an even more precise um, formulation would be that the jury, the trial jury, is the lower house, as it were, of a bicameral judiciary. So just as, since there's no federal law of crime, common law of crimes, both the House and the Senate are going to have to agree to a federal bill, bicameralism in the legislature, the House and the Senate. Um, and actually in the executive branch, there's a certain kind of bicameralism. The president's going to need to sign that bill and prosecute people and not pardon them. And actually within the executive branch, the lower house is in effect a grand jury that's going to have to agree to indict someone. Otherwise, the, 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 the prosecution never leaves the station. So there's bicameralism in the legislature, the lower house, and the upper Senate. There's kind of bicameralism in the executive the grand jury as the lower house and the president as the upper house of the executive. And there's bicameralism in the judiciary. There's the, the jury, the trial jury in an ordinary criminal case, and the judge. And the idea is basically all six kind of have to rule against someone before they go to a federal prison. The House has to vote for a law, and so does the Senate. Um, the president has to sign it into law and enforce it typically or, and not pardon under it. And, and the grand, a grand jury has to indict. And both and in the judiciary, the third branch, both a judge and a jury, the upper house of the judge and the lower um, branch, uh, the lower house of, of the jury have to basically agree before um, someone can be uh, convicted and sentenced and sent off to prison. That's that founder's model, kind of bicameralism uh, in a way in each of the three main branches. And since you mentioned Chase, I, I can't um, resist sharing with you a little vignette also from the book. Um, in, he presides over two of the three biggest um, Sedition Act cases on circuit, um, one against Cooper in uh, Philadelphia and one against Callender in Virginia. And in Virginia, Callender's attorney, who's uh, actually going to go on to become one of the famous attorneys um, of the 19th century, actually the longest-serving U.S. Attorney General later in his career, a man named William Wirt, tries to basically defend Calendar by telling the jury that this is an unconstitutional statute. So let me just read. And Chase is the presiding officer, uh, the presiding judge. He's a Supreme Court justice, writing circuit, and here's the exchange. Um, Chase, circuit justice, take your seat, sir, if you please. If I understand you rightly, you offer an argument to the pettit jury to convince them that the Sedition Act is contrary to the Constitution of the United States and therefore void. Now, I tell you that this is irregular and inadmissible. It is not competent to the jury to decide this point. We all know that juries have the right to decide the law as well as the fact, and the Constitution is the supreme law of the land, which controls all laws repugnant to it. Mr. Word. Since then, the jury have a right to consider the law, and since the Constitution is law, the conclusion is certainly syllogistic that the jury have a right to consider the Constitution. Chase, Secretary Justice, a non-sequitur, sir. <laughs> Here, Mr. Wirtz sat down. And of course, it's not a non-sequitur at all. It's a perfect syllogism. You know, Chase is admitting, oh, the Constitution is higher law, and yes, actually, juries do play a role in deciding law as well as fact. 
Not today, but at the founding they did. And Chase knows that, and there's actually an explicit Virginia statute that says so. And Wirtz says, well, the Constitution's higher law, and judges uh, decide law, but so do juries. So I should be able to make my argument to the judge and to the jury. And if I win either place, I should win just as if I win in either the House or the Senate. There's no sedition bill at all that passes. It's got to pass both the House and the Senate in the legislative branch by Camerley, and in the executive branch, both the grand jury and the president have to want to basically prosecute someone. So too in the judiciary, both the lower house of the jury and the upper house of, of the judge have to agree. And Chase says, sit down, sir. <laughs> and Chase is later going to get impeached um, for his mishandling of the calendar case, where he's really unfair to calendar in all sorts of ways um, on, on other issues. And he's going to get impeached for um, uh, being uh, unduly dismissive of uh, jury rights and defendants' rights to, to try to make um, uh, to present issues to the jury. Um, he's not convicted, uh, Chase, in this impeachment trial, but actually more than a majority votes to convict. They just don't have two-thirds. And as we know from recent events, it's not easy to get to two-thirds. Indeed. So um, you say that it's no longer the case. That's a great story, by the way. And, of course, we should point out this is not the Lincoln's Samuel Chase. Um, uh, Lincoln is Salmon P. Chase, mm -hmm. who is um, uh, someone who Lincoln makes chief right. justice of the United States. No relation. This is a guy named Samuel Chase mm -hmm. from Maryland. Salmon P. Chase is a great abolitionist lawyer, governor, senator, a cap uh, treasury secretary, um, become Chief Justice from Ohio. And it's actually, and Simon P. Chase has a very high opinion of himself, um, so high opinion that um, the, the greenbacks, the dollar bills that are uh, uh, generated in the uh, Lincoln administration have Chase's picture on them and not Lincoln's. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you said that this, that the role of juries is, is, this is no longer the way it is now. I mean, we hear about jury nullification on TV. You know, but um, so what what changed? I mean, is it it sounds like it's a it's a constitutional procedure. So uh, I don't think it's been amended. So why is it gone? Because judges like to accrete power to themselves and uh, uh, juries are ad hoc amateur institutions that in the long run are not able to protect themselves and their prerogatives as much as our judges who who sit permanently and and rule case after case so in the long run the permanent professionals sort of muscle out the temporary amateurs uh part of it is also a lot of ordinary citizens today don't like jury duty maybe never have they're trying to get out of it so in the long run the pro permanent professionals often win against the temporary amateurs. In self-defense, that would be police departments and the army as opposed to the community watch, the hue and cry, the posse, um, the, uh, uh, the militia, the self-informing um, grand jury. Um, in um, uh, the judicial branch, it's basically the rise of judges at the expense of juries. So the uh, the strong do what they what they will, and the weak do what they must. Uh, and it's a point about professionalization too. And oh, and as the years go on, the judges say, "Oh, well, we went to law school and you didn't, and this is technical law." At, at the founding, people would say, 
actually, no one went to law school. Andrew Jackson kind of apprenticed himself and, you know, uh, he has modest education and he can become a self-taught lawyer. Abe Lincoln has less than a year's formal education in his life. Not formal college education, all formal education, uh, K through whatever, less than a year, but he can become a self-taught lawyer. So in, in the founder's world, um, they're not law schools, um, uh, and ordinary people can become lawyers, and judges don't have that much more legal expertise, truthfully, compared to lots of other folks. Uh, and in addition to all, all, all of that, the Constitution is supposed to be a special kind of law that's uh, transparent to ordinary citizens, that it's short, um, they voted for it, um, so they should be able to understand basic concepts like freedom of speech and freedom of the press. Indeed. And by the way, the whole point of this podcast and actually of the book from which we're featuring the readings, the, the words that made us, is precisely to try to move back a little bit more toward a founding era world where ordinary Americans understood their constitution and their rights. Um, and you and I believe they have to understand the constitution and their rights, for example, in order to decide whom to vote for for president. You earlier mentioned how jurors are like voters in a way. And yes, the jury is supposed to look like America and so is the electorate. And they need to know something about constitutional rights and duties to discharge their responsibilities on the jury and also to discharge their responsibilities on election day. And th th this series in particular is about um, helping them discharge that responsibility by explaining to people why Adams was a bad president. Um, because he actually enforced a law that, that criminalized criticism of government, and that's the wrong approach. And, and we've already been there, done that, but if today's generation doesn't know any of that, we're doomed to, to repeat the mistake rather than learn from it. I think your your uh, analysis about the bicameralism um, empowers jurors, you know, empowers the citizenry to realize that their role as jurors is not just a uh, pain in the neck, but that they actually are, uh, you know, a part of the constitutional system in a very fundamental way. So I think that's that's that goes along with that theme as well. Thank you. Tocqueville said he wasn't sure whether jury trials were great for the parties to the lawsuits, but he did think they were great for the jurors. They were, in his phrase, a free public school, ever open, teaching, he said, men, their um, ordinary citizens, their rights and responsibilities. Amen. And we've lost that. Okay, and now the final section of the reading for today. The biggest problem with the Sedition Act was its self-sealing quality. Anyone who harshly criticized this horrid law, such as Calendar, risked prosecution under the law itself. But each state legislature was a special speech spot, much like Parliament and Congress. True, nothing in Article I said this explicitly, quite, even as Article I explicitly guaranteed sweeping freedom of speech in Congress. True, nothing in the Sedition Act itself expressly exempted speech in state legislatures from the full scope of the statute. But everything in American history and tradition guaranteed that state legislatures would continue, as before, to operate as special speech spots. 
even if newspapers risked prosecution under the Sedition Act if they initiated their own critiques of the act or reprinted other newspapers' critiques, surely they would enjoy absolute immunity if they merely told their readers what had been said in the special speech spots in state capitals. Thus, Madison and Jefferson quietly composed resolutions for adoption in the Virginia and Kentucky legislatures, respectively. Madison was by far the abler constitutional theorist and practitioner, and his version has aged better than Jefferson's. On Christmas Eve, 1798, the Virginia General Assembly denounced the provisions of the Sedition Act as, quote, palpable and alarming infractions of the Constitution, unquote. The legislature identified the Sedition Act as uniquely bad. That act, quote, more than any other, ought to produce universal alarm because it's leveled against that right of freely examining public characters and measures and a free communication among the people thereon, which has justly been deemed the only effectual guardian of every other right, unquote. And I think that's just right. Over the next six weeks, Newspapers in most states reprinted or excerpted Virginia's protest. In a follow-up report drafted by Madison in 1799, the Virginia legislature refines its structural analysis and added a powerful historical addendum. Structurally, quote, information and communication among the people was indispensable to the just exercise of their electoral rights. Free and fair election, unquote. Free and fair elections required a level playing field. Given that incumbents were allowed under the Sedition Act to expose challengers to disrepute among the people, challengers deserve the same right to cast animadversions upon incumbents. Historically, the American Revolution had come about only because Americans had been able to freely criticize central officialdom. The Constitution had likewise come about thanks to vigorous criticisms of governments, both state and continental. A sedition act was thus un-American and unprecedented. Had sedition acts akin to the 1798 act, quote, been uniformly enforced against the press in previous times, might not the United States have been languishing at this day under the infirmities of a sickly confederation? Might they not possibly be miserable colonies groaning under a foreign yoke? Unquote. John Adams had forgotten where he came from and where America came from. In the short run, Madison and Jefferson did not succeed in getting other state legislatures to join the Virginia and Kentucky bandwagon. But in the end, it did not matter whether the two statesmen immediately convinced a majority of state lawmakers just as it did not matter whether they immediately convinced a majority of sitting Supreme Court justices. What mattered most in 1800-1801 was winning a majority of electoral college votes in the Jefferson-Adams rematch. And that Jefferson did, when the American people, having now seen quite vividly what freedom meant to Adams and what freedom meant to Jefferson, again decided between these two icons of 1776, they decided for Jefferson. 
And was that really what the election of 1800 was about? It was one of the biggest things, yes. Um, I mentioned a couple of times in passing there was this controversy about an extradition case. There was this fellow, named, um, he claimed his name was Jonathan Robbins from Connecticut, and, he, uh, and the Brits actually claimed, oh, no, you're actually a, a, a British uh, a sailor named Thomas Nash, and, and you just run away and, and uh, assume the false identity. Um, Adams um, complies, uh, uh, and Adams appointed an Adams appointed judiciary comply with the British request to extradite this guy, and he's eventually hanged in a drumhead court. That was a, a particularly prominent issue in 1800. But oh yes, the Sedition Act. Um, was a big deal, and basically uh, Jefferson and Madison used state legislatures to generate opposition, which then generates newspaper stories to get their uh, message out there that um, uh, Adams is tyrannical. He's criminalizing uh, uh, opposition speech, just uh, and uh, and that's. Um, an existential threat to liberty. Um, and uh, enough Americans agree with, with that um, argument. So, yes, it's one of the central things in the campaign of 1800. Um, and enough Americans agree to elect Jefferson. Now, there are other things that are, of course, going on in that campaign, as are going through in every campaign. And you and I also know that Jefferson is the huge beneficiary of slavery in that election. Most of the South votes for Jefferson. Most of the North votes for Adams. But Jefferson's going to get an extra boost because those Southern states get have more electoral votes because of slavery. And three fifths of uh, uh, um, the three fifths clause means that uh, um, uh, Virginia is going to have way more electoral votes than Pennsylvania. Um, and it's going to have way more electoral votes because it's got all these slaves. Uh, and and in so, fact, uh, Jefferson is, uh, they, they're aware of this at the time. Um, he's, uh, he's referred to as a Negro president. That's he, uh, the, the title of the great book by Gary Wills um, mm -hmm. on, on this issue. And by the way, I can't just resist um, um, crowing to our audience just because Wills is one of my heroes. Pulitzer Prize-winning author of Lincoln at Gettysburg and about 50 other amazing books. Um, but the great Gary Wills was actually kind enough to very generously blurb um, this new book. And I'm hoping, Andy, this is not a done deal yet, but that we might be able to sweet-talk him into being a, a guest on, on a future podcast. We'll have to make that happen. And actually, when Jefferson becomes president, he... Uh has a favorable uh, economy compared to uh, to Adams because um, he gets a peace dividend because Adams was actually successful um, with the in preventing the war and so all the money that had to be spent on building up the navy and so forth Jefferson doesn't have to spend that money um, so he gets he gets this peace dividend and is able to do popular things like Louisiana Purchase and and so forth so he actually so, benefits yeah. from Adams <laughs> policies. And, and that's going to be generally true um, uh, uh, if we manage to turn the corner on COVID. Republicans are going to say, "Oh, that's because of Operation Warp Speed, and that's because of Donald Trump." 
um, and um, and Trump um, said, "Oh, look, the, the stock market um, improved on my watch," and um, and uh, we Democrats say, "Yes, and it was improving before on Barack Obama's watch." And early in the Trump administration, he said, "Look at all these new jobs on my watch," and we Democrats said, "Yes, that's just a continuation of the Obama economy um, that got us out of the Bush recession." So there are always going to be these debates about who gets credit for stuff um, uh, when good things happen and who deserves the blame uh, when bad things happen. Uh, one important thing that we're going to talk about in uh, our next podcast is the, Je uh, the Jefferson presidency. He's third up. And I'm going to remind our audience that one great thing that Thomas Jefferson does do is uh, refuse to revive the Sedition Act. Um, so just to return to what we were saying mm -hmm. really at the beginning, Adams loses because he locks up his opponents. And I was always opposed to Trump because even before he took office, he was talking about locking up his opponents. Um, and Jefferson doesn't do that as president. And Washington didn't, doesn't do that as president. And so this series is going to give our audience um, just a little bit more of a window into which presidents succeeded um, and why. Why Washington is a two-termer, he doesn't lock up his opponents. Why Jefferson's a two-termer, he doesn't lock up his opponents. Why Madison's a two-termer, he doesn't lock up his opponents. Um, uh, and, um, and that's um, we're going to actually not talk about Madison. We'll talk about um, a Andrew Jackson. Um, uh, but but Adams locks up his opponents. Lock her up. That's Trump, and that's why I'm I was opposed to Trump even before um, he 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 was uh, he 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 won in 2016. And uh, and you see in Adams some of these the, the same thin-skinned uh, uh, um, uh, and. Uh, uh, Tendency, um, this um, uh, uh, unwillingness to uh, to um, be fair to to critics. Well, probably the president who was uh, close to as bookish as as Adams was uh, Woodrow Wilson, who also locked up uh, some of his opponents. And uh, you and I should remind our audience. Andy and I have so many things in common. We're dads. We're you know, about the same age. But 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 here's another thing that we do have in common. We are Yaleys, and Woodrow Wilson is a Princeton guy, and John Adams is a Harvard guy. Just saying. Yes. Um, so oh, oh oh, and actually. William Howard Taft wasn't perfect in every respect, but he was, you know, in generally much more conscientious uh, constitutionally. He's a Yaley. So in the end, you, you, John, John Adams gets a, a dim view in the uh, Kilimar uh, pantheon of, of presidents. Um, why is it that you um, come up to such a different conclusion? than a noted biographer, let's say, like uh, David McCullough, who has such a, uh, a glowing view of, of John Adams and his work. Well, I do love David McCullough and his grandson of the same name, who's one of my uh, protégés. Uh, um, biographers in general tend to be pretty generous to their subjects. That's not always true. You're a big fan of Robert Cairo, and he, he, he was pretty hard on Robert Moses and is being, at least uh, at times, uh, hard on, on Lyndon Johnson. But a lot of biographers tend to go easy on their subjects. Well, maybe we'll ask David at one point. Okay, to be continued. But but before we do that, next 
next week, number three, Thomas Jefferson. See you then. Okay. Bye. Bye.